Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. David became the first man in the Bible. This is why he's special. The first man in the Bible to be described as a man after God's own heart. The Bible is made up of many stories, not myths or fanciful tales, but true stories that reveal why the world is the way it is and the heart of its creator. But did you know that all of the smaller stories form part of one grand story that reveals God's plan for redemption? Each story is like a small portion of a jigsaw. And when we stand back and look at the whole, we get to see the jigsaw box lid and broaden our understanding of who God really is. Dr. Corbett is continuing in his series, The Eight Greatest Stories in the Bible. Let's join him tonight for the shepherd boy who became king. Okay, if you, if you came with a paper Bible, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just talk to someone who's older than years old and they may have come with one. They can show you. It, it's quite fascinating. It's got pages in it and all sorts. And uh, I, I'd like you to, if you've got a bookmarky thing, I want you to bookmark just for the moment Psalm 51 and also too. Sometimes we say put a finger in there, but you're going to keep two fingers in there for quite a while. So just, just make sure you've got those bookmarked because we're going to be referring to those and I'm only going to be giving you a little snippet there. I want to continue on this series, the, the eight greatest true stories in the Bible. And one of the reasons why, why it's, it's called that is because I don't want anyone to think that the Bible is actually a collection of once upon a time stories. This is, these, these events that are described here, unless the author is telling us the, the narrator or whatever is telling us that it's a parable or something like that, we can, we can rightly assume that the events described here were, were true stories. And there's, there's some reasons why I want to do this. And so as we look at these stories, I'm hoping that at the end of it, you get a, a clearer concept that the Bible is one story. And in fact, I want to tell you, just give you a little, peel the curtain back a bit and take you backstage for a moment, that I, I have some pastoral hopes for doing this. The first one is that I want us to understand that the Bible is comprised of many stories that makes one grand story. That's the first thing. That's how we see it. So sometimes we, well, sometimes I have seen that Christians don't know how to read their Bible and they don't know what they don't have a plan and so on and it must be I think the only book in which people pick it up sort of in random places maybe open to a random page read a random text and have no clue what it's saying so I want to give you a sense as I did last week where I showed you the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that if all you do is if that's how you read the Bible I want to encourage you to read it a little bit differently Otherwise, it's like picking up a random piece of a jigsaw puzzle out of a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and having no clue what that piece is all about. Secondly, I want, you, I want to help us to realise that all of history is moving in a pre-ordained plan. That, and this should give us, as we see this, as we can demonstrate this, this will give us confidence that God is actually worthy of our trust. And again, if I, if I was to do a visual today and I'd didn't have the appropriate equipment to do the visual and I, I could have asked Kathy Littlejohn but it might have taken you a while to get it ready. I mentioned to you about a tapestry, you know, on the top the tapestry makes sense but underneath it can look like, and that's what I would have shown you, I would have shown you the underneath of the tapestry and would have shown you strands of, you know, wool and cotton and fabric and all the rest of that. and it would have made no sense until we turn it around and then you can see it and if you think of history unfolding somewhat like that we're looking at underneath God's looking at the top and he sees a picture and we see no, it just doesn't make sense to us but as we read through the Bible I hope that you begin to see this tapestry makes sense and he's worthy of trust as a result I also want us to discover that God has a plan of redemption that means our rescue that means that many of us Many of us, if not all of us in this room, came to a point where we realised there was something wrong, something missing. When something's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, it's broken. And when 
people live lives that can only lead to brokenness. They can only experience pain and frustration. And there are many, many people who are experiencing that right now in our valley, in our city. So I want you to see that as we begin to see that God has a plan of redemption and it involves two things, the saving and the rescuing of those who have been ensnared by evil. But the other thing it's doing, it's also the Bible is a description of how God is vanquishing evil. Now what does vanquishing mean? Not just defeat it, but to defeat it, remove it and get rid of it so it no longer exists. That's what God's doing. I didn't quite have enough room to fit all the words in that I wanted to explain this, but, I, but I've got there. This is why the Bible is a progressive revelation. And it's a progressive revelation in that Genesis 1.1 doesn't just tell us everything about God, about the nature of sin, the nature of humanity, the nature of the world. It, it just doesn't do that. It gives us enough, gives us a bit more, and then unfolds it through the rest of the Bible. This is what we mean by progressive revelation. And there's a progressive revelation in the Bible about how God is going to deal with the forces of darkness and evil. One of the things I've briefly alluded to is that when we look at God's word now about what Christ, Jesus Christ did, we go, ah, yeah, okay, now we see it. But Paul, writing in his epistles, he, he says this, if, if the forces of darkness, if the rulers of this world, remember we just read that in Psalm 149, that's how we know they're not heavenly rulers, they're, they're spiritual. He says, if they had known, if they had known God's plan of redemption, they would have never put Jesus to death. Because the death of Jesus was central to God's plan of redemption. And the, and the reason there is that these, these demonic forces, these evil forces, they're not dumb. But God has written his word in a way that it can be veiled from people where you can read it. And if you have not been, if the Holy Spirit has not opened your eyes, it's going to seem veiled to you. It's like, what? what? And this is progressive revelation that God has unfolded his word fourthly I, I want i want you to be encouraged that god's plan of redemption involved sinful imperfect people who at times failed and failed magnificently yet god was still able to accomplish his will today we're going to have a look at one such example of that and fifthly as we look at all of these stories we piece them together and we begin to get a picture of the box lid of the jigsaw puzzle, that we'll begin to utilise what we can now draw out of this. We'll utilise the connection between how we pray and how we understand God's word. And if you understand that praying God's word is a spiritually potent, that means powerful way to do life, to pray as well. And sixthly, to, uh, this, this is really something I hope you all experience it. I hope that you have someone who says to you, what's the Bible all about? Or a question like that. And I hope you can answer their question. I hope you can say, well, let me tell you what the Bible's all about. Do you have three minutes? I can tell you in three minutes. And I hope you can do that by what we are doing now. So this is, this is the fourth instalment of our series on the, the, the eight greatest true stories in the Bible. And this is the shepherd boy who became a king and it's, it's subtitled uh, the boy who was told not to throw stones or you might kill someone did. So this is one of the greatest of the eight stories in the Bible and here's the reason why. So now I want to give you uh, what I might call a golden thread that just runs through everything. So see if you can track with me now. God's redemptive plan, his plan to rescue us, unique in all of the universe because we're created in the image of God. He loves us, he cares for us, he doesn't want to see any person leave this life 
and end up being separated in eternal condemnation. He doesn't want that. But he doesn't impose his salvation on anyone. We all must choose to receive and accept it, which is why we preach. It's why we share. It's why we, we, we speak to people about this. But here's the lineage. We have seen that God created Adam and Eve. We then come to a point where something dramatic happened. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But evil entered into the world in an unusual, the word here is phenomenal way. There was phenomena that came with certain creatures, certain evil, spiritual, formerly heavenly creatures who invaded earth and corrupted mankind to the point where it says every thought every imagination every desire of man was evil that's pretty bad and we know that these these spiritual creatures taught men the way of seduction of women it taught men the art of murder and so we have some scholars who believe that the death rate around the time of Noah was so alarming that these evil beings had destined had designed rather to eradicate mankind altogether if God hadn't intervened with a flood if he hadn't have chosen Noah and his family mankind would have been wiped out and the entire plan of redemption how God had designed from the foundation of the world to vanquish evil not just on planet earth but in the entire universe would have been in jeopardy so here we have Noah his son Shem Shem, one of his descendants, was Abraham. His descendant, Isaac, his descendant, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then his descendant, Judah, one of his 12 sons. And then eventually, this man, David. So this is the line, this is the lineage that we're seeing in Scripture. David became the first man in the Bible. This is why he's special. The first man in the Bible to be described as a man after God's own heart. Abraham was described as a friend of God, but David was described as a man after God's own heart. Why? Certainly not because he was holy. Certainly not because he was holier than anyone else, but because he learned how to repent. He learned how to repent and this is why I've asked you to hold your or put a bookmark in those two psalms because we'll be coming to those in a moment thirdly God made a unique covenant with David that unique covenant with David was that one of his descendants would become not just king but an everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom no one else had that promise given to them except David Fourthly, the promised redeemer, the one who would be this everlasting king, and by the way, promised one, means Messiah. He would be known as the son of David. That would be his title, the son of David. And we hear from that that the word son in the Bible means a member of that family. So even though there's multiple generations between David and Jesus who was the fulfillment of that and that's the point Jesus fulfilled the prophecies given to David and David received these prophecies and when he was given these prophecies by Nathan the prophet he dropped to his knees it says he got up he he washed himself and he went into the tabernacle and he worshipped God in utter amazement So we're going to discover something about David. One of the best ways to start a story about anyone is to go to the beginning. This is Ruth chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, The women of the neighbourhood gave him a name. And this is the name of the child that was birthed to Ruth and Boaz. A son, they said, a son has been born to Naomi. That was the grandmother of of this child they named him Obed he was the father of Jesse the father of David so we see that David was the great grandson of Boaz and Ruth 
He was born and raised in a tiny, insignificant town. And how often does God do that? When I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, to, uh, as the guest of the Billy Graham Association, I, I, I went into their, their new headquarters there. They used to be based in Minneapolis, and they've moved to Charlotte. And they tell the story of Billy Graham. In fact, Billy Graham was, was raised in such a small town in uh, North Carolina, I haven't found anyone who actually knows the name of it. He, he milked cows before he went to school. He had to get up at some... This is going to shock many teenagers here. There is a 4 a.m. There is, apparently. And he had to get up there and milk cows for a couple of hours before he changed and went to school each morning. So he grew up on a dairy farm in a place that I've Googled it. I can't even find anybody who knows where that place is. Such an insignificant place. And this is what God does. He takes insignificant people and he takes them from insignificant places, from insignificant seemingly upbringings, and he does something with them. After the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul, had grown increasingly unfaithful to God, the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king. And you find this account in 1 Samuel chapter 16, which is a great way to get a, a handle around how old David would have been. He would have been no more than 16. He was sent, the prophet Samuel was sent to a family of eight brothers and became confused about God's choice for the next king. It's always amazing me when, when I see Hollywood make movies about uh, biblical heroes, you know, like who, who honestly thinks Moses looked like Charlton Heston? <laughs> All right, there's one. Like flint jaw, you know, granite features. I don't know. It's the same when artists depict Jesus. You know, blonde hair, blue eyes, white skin. Anyone think Jesus looked like that? The prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus. He had no form, no comeliness, no, nothing physically attractive about him. We esteemed him not. In other words, if it wasn't for, what, for who Jesus was, he could have walked past us and we would never have known. Except there was something about him and it wasn't physical. It says this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab, the oldest son of these brothers, the oldest of the brothers, and thought, oh, look at this guy, Charlton Heston jaw, piercing eyes, six foot three, reddish hair. <laughs> Surely the Lord's anointed is before me now. Samuel says, but this isn't, listen to what God says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Excuse me. <laughs> no, no, you're free to say amen anytime, Lynn. <laughs> because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel was like, oh, surely, look at him. Six foot two, broad shoulders, olive skin. And the Lord said to him, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And the, the writer here is telling us we could go through all seven of these brothers, but let's just jump to the point. And Jesse made the seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse, this is funny. I've been sent here to anoint one of your sons as the next king and none of these seven are the king. This is really, really odd. 
Then Samuel said to Jesse, do you have any other sons? Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And by the way, that word youngest in Hebrew can also mean, you'd be pleased to know, Lynn, the smallest, (laughs) the shortest. But he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, this is him. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And you've got to picture this. Samuel's going, are you sure? It's, it's a boy. It's a boy, not a man, it's a boy. I want to I wanna see God do something in the boys of this church. I want to help and I want you to help me. I want the men to help me. That we help boys to become men, young men. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, horn from a, from a bullock, that horn, the symbol of strength, filled with oil, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, God's presence, and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Wowzers. That's the other thing I want to see happen um, with the young boys of this church, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, able to pray in tongues, able to use the gifts of the Spirit, able to be discerning, able to read God's Word and have it sink into their soul, where the kingdom of God is their number one priority. That's what I want to see. Rather than anointing the most impressive looking the Lord had Samuel anoint the youngest and the smallest of Jesse's sons hmm. David later on as we read through the text in in 1 Samuel 16 he was admitted into the king's court as a musician as a very young I'm using that word deliberately young man who then became the king's armor bearer it says in 1 Samuel 16 21 and David came to Saul He was originally enlisted as a musician and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. But as we'll see in a moment, Saul didn't really know his name, didn't know who he was, didn't really take that much interest in him. And he became his armour bearer, his servant essentially. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, which is like a harp, and played it with his hand so Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him boy there's a lot I could say about music and spiritual warfare here but you're going to have to come back tonight to hear me say it despite being in the king's service the king largely ignored David until he David battled and defeated the Philistine giant now by the way this Goliath he was part human his giganticism is not mere nbl basketball height because it says he has six six fingers on each hand six toes on each foot he was extraordinarily big there is something superhuman about him again i'll talk more about that in our evening series and david said to saul let david said the young boy 15 16 years of age let no man's heart fail because of him your servant will go and fight with this philistine now what we are about to read is a a battle not just of two people but there's spiritual forces in play here and david said to saul said to david 
you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth but David said to Saul excuse me Saul I've killed rabbits and uh, a lion and a probably a lion cub but a bear and I anyone anything that's come and taken a, a lamb from my flock I've killed him that's me paraphrasing that a bit I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth and if he arose against me I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him and David said the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine and Saul said to David go and the Lord be with you probably without realizing the Lord was already with David we already read about it there was something supernatural now empowering David but it's interesting how God gets us to do little things before he gets us to do great things there's a lot we could say about that but let's move on then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine now David's battle with Goliath we've got to see this it this is a battle not about who's the strongest soldier who's the who's going to win this but it's about who is God in Israel is it the God of the Philistines and the gods of the Philistines were gods that they believed the Philistines believed that with their magic arts they could manipulate the gods to get what they want that's called paganism and can I say that there are some Christians that think that's what prayer is in their relationship with God and that is paganism we do not pray to manipulate God to do what we want Anyone sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit? You might want to just turn to the person beside you and say, I think he's talking to you. <coughs> and the Philistine said to David, ha, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now we know there is something going on here remember when Jesus walked into a cemetery there was a demonic person who said we know who you are have you come here to bring judgment on us like and it was coming out of the mouth of the man but it wasn't the man hmm interesting this whole spiritual realm isn't it then David said to the Philistine you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts hosts means armies the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied and we know then that David took his slingshot would have required this it's tied around here it's held here it's and then let go and it's it's able to project a missile a stone missile faster or just about as fast as a as a bullet out of a gun and it got Goliath right in the temple and sunk in and he and David came and took Goliath's head off with Goliath's sword bit of a humiliation there for the enemy now what happened next is intriguing because I don't know how many young boys would do what David did when this happened there's the cheering armies of Israel going yay for David cheering 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 David can't even hear them he grabs the hair remember he grabbed the he used to grab the beard of of those in, and he grabs the hair beard head hair I don't know probably beard because Goliath may have had a helmet on he grabs it there's blood I don't want to be but you know use your imagination what's dripping out of that head and he leaves the camp he goes for a several kilometer walk he goes to the foot of a little relatively little mountain called Mount Zion the land of the Jebusites the inhabitants of what would become Jerusalem and there's a great big wall fortress wall around them and David does this Grr. what the, what is this kid doing Grr. 
grrr, like this. And then goes back to the camp and everyone pats him on the back. You think, what is that about? See, this kid was filled with the Spirit of God. Just as the Spirit of God drew Jesus out into the desert, the Spirit of God drew him to this mountain, one of seven mountains in that region where Jerusalem would eventually go, where the temple would eventually go, where Jesus would eventually be crucified. And David is saying, you're invaders. This is not yours. This is what I've done. I'll do it to you. Get out. And eventually that's what happened. Not bad for a 15, 16-year-old kid. Wowzers. Soon David's courage as he grew up, his courage and his wisdom as a leader became obvious to all Israel, even though he was only young. How many heard Martin Niles and thought, how the heck did this guy know all this stuff and he's only, you know, young? Yeah, I know how old he is. That's old for some people. But all Israel, it says, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 16 But all Israel loved David, for he went out and came in before them, which is a military expression. He led out the army. He led the army back in. In other words, he led them out, they won, he came back in victorious. That's what it's saying. David developed an ability to win people. The book of Revelation will later call this the key that he had. He had a key to win people, the key of David. By the way, it describes Jesus as having that key now. The key of David, the ability to win people, especially those who had felt unwanted. If you've got a King James Bible, you'll know that there are three D categories of people. The debted, the distressed, and the discontent. But modern translations render it this way. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he... David became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. Now remember, these, all these people had issues. All of them had issues. Who wants to see our church grow? All right, three people, four people. What if God brings people in, because he hasn't yet, I'm saying, with issues? God quickly guided David through his word to him David received the word it's in fact uncanny if you take a highlighter or a pencil and underline this how often a prophet comes to David and gives him the word of the Lord and and from the outset David was guided by a prophet and he had the humility to accept it even though David was filled with the Holy Spirit he was covered with the Holy Spirit it says the Holy Spirit came upon him he didn't have it all and God used prophets and here's an example this is taken from first samuel chapter 22 and verse 5 then the prophet gad said to david when david was fleeing from king saul who was rather threatened by david and king saul wanted to kill david then the prophet gad said to david do not remain in this stronghold the stronghold depart and go into the land of judah so david departed and went into the forest of heret Even though God was with David and even though God had promised to make David king of Israel, David faced great opposition. And I think there's a principle here that we might need to get. Just because God promises that he's going to use us, he's going to do something in and through us and you, doesn't mean you're not going to have any opposition. In fact, uh, the the greater the opposition, the, the greater the strength God's going to give you to get through it. Oh, I thought that was exciting too. I... (laughs) God God enabled David and it says, And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Then Saul took 3,000 men. This just gives you an idea of the opposition David met. This is 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. We go to chapter 30. This just gives you an indication of the opposition that David 
experienced. He got it from Saul. He got it from the, the king's army. He got it from all these people. Then he got it from his own men. These men, remember I said they had issues? Yeah, they had issues. They, wanted to, they ended up wanting to kill David as well. We read here in chapter 30 and verse 6 uh, that David then responded like this. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each of his sons and daughters but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God isn't that amazing I hope you learn how to do that as well even though David had opportunity during that time to kill King Saul he waited for God to deal with this apostate king he didn't do it you know some of the stories but when news came that Saul had been killed in battle the leaders of Judah came to make David their king and it, there's that verse that uh, we'll see later. But seven years later, this is where that, that verse in Chronicles where it says, And the men of Issachar knew the times and they knew what to do. What did they know what to do? They knew they needed to make David king of all Israel. That's what they needed to do. And that's what they did. So seven years later, the leaders of the northern alliance of Israel's tribes made David their king as well. So if you think of Israel... Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin. And, and Judah and Benjamin are known as Judah. And then to the north, they're not, the, all those ten tribes are known as Ephraim. And the reason for that is Judah was the biggest of the tribes. Ephraim was the biggest of the ten tribes to the north. And David established his kingdom under his military leadership. But then... Even though he'd gone out and come in as a victorious military leader, then he stopped going out. He stopped leading his army into battle. This led to David making a number of terrible mistakes that eventually led, resulted in his darkest hour. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful hmm the result was terrible it was terrible it involved sexual sin he committed adultery with her she got pregnant. David tried to cover it up by making it look like he wasn't the father. That led to deception. Her husband wouldn't buy it. So David put a contract out on his life and disguised it under the, the guise of a military battle. But it was really murder. No one knew about it except Joab. And so there was more deception involved when he took Bathsheba as his wife after uh, he died, her husband had died, Uzziah. That led to something happening in David's soul, especially when Nathan the prophet came to David. No one knew about this except Joab, his commander. And Nathan is sent by God. And Nathan says to David can I tell you a story sure tell me a story there was a man who had lots and lots of sheep but there was a man who lived next door to him who only had one little lamb and when the man who had lots and lots of sheep had a guest come to stay with him he could have taken one of the lambs as, as the meal but instead he went next door and stole the other man's only lamb and killed it and gave that as the meal to his guest. And David was furious. Who would do such a thing? David said. And Nathan 
stares him down, points his bony prophet finger at him and says, you are the man. When you took Bathsheba from Uzziah and you did what you did and you thought no one knew, the Lord saw it all. And David was cut to the core of his soul. He experienced anguish, guilt, shame. We follow the story. He sowed a seed that he would reap and that seed would be sexual immorality in his own family that would lead to turmoil and family breakdown, betrayal. It would ultimately result in thousands of people of Israel dying needlessly because of his act. It always baffles me when people think, yeah, okay, I may have done the wrong thing, but I haven't hurt anyone. Foolish. When, the, when Nathan the prophet addressed David, confronted him with this, we have Psalm 51. Psalm 51, I'll, I'll just read the, the opening couple of verses so you get the idea of what David is going through. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, David says in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And he goes on and he describes the anguish that he is in. But then at the end of it, having sought God for forgiveness and cleansing, he experiences it. He experiences God taking his sin, guilt and shame. And somehow, spiritually, mystically, God takes that and thrusts it forward 1,100 years and puts it on a cross in Jerusalem where the Redeemer was to die. And David, back in time, without realising what God had to do to atone for his sin, writes Psalm 32, where he says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah, which is, everyone think about what I've just said. And David experienced the forgiveness of God because he confessed his guilt and shame. And he asked God to forgive him. And can I tell you, the God who took that sin, guilt and shame and thrust it forward 1,100 years to put it on a cross, about 30 AD from David's 1100 BC, is the same God who can take your sin today and take it back nearly 2,000 years and put it on the same Jesus right now if you will ask him for forgiveness. David sought the Lord's forgiveness and found it. And God was able to redeem David's disgraceful conduct. The result was that David would find that the angel of death would come at one point and was, was killing people because of David's refusal to be fully obedient to God. And David went to a, a hill, the top of Mount Zion. And there the angel stood ready with a sword. To, to kill out, wipe out the rest of, of the people of Jerusalem. And David said, God, how can I stop this? And he bought this mountaintop from a rawner, a farmer. And he said, I must make a sacrifice to the Lord to atone for what I've done. And a rawner said, here, here, I've, got, I've got a cow, you can take this. And David said, no, 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 I'm not going to, no, I've got to pay a price what I've done I've got to pay a price I will buy that and I'll buy this land off you and he did and he sacrificed this animal there and that is the site where the temple was built and there are ruins of that still in Jerusalem to this day 
So we see that God redeemed what David had done. He established a covenant with him. Nathan came back to him and expressed, you're going to have an everlasting kingdom ruled by an everlasting king. It looked maybe like Solomon was that one, but Solomon didn't live for everlasting. It was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And the result was that a temple was planned and David gave his son Solomon the means by which it was to be completed. So what do we learn from this story? It's one of the main pillars of the redemption story in the Bible. Firstly, this is what I hope you can see from this story. God looks at the heart and he looks for a heart that seeks him. Sometimes we're quick to judge, aren't we? Without realising that person with all the tattoos and earrings and maybe, have, maybe has language that you wouldn't encourage, God's doing something in their heart. Secondly, even when we fail God, we can still repent and have God redeem our failures. Man, thank you, God. Thirdly, our lives will leave a legacy well beyond our generation, especially if we pray for it as David did. And fourthly, it's possible to find peace with God peace for your soul because of what Jesus Christ did and David was able to find it because of what Jesus Christ did would you please stand there there are some who are joining with us now online who may never have heard God's word explained they may never have got it they may never have heard that their sin, guilt and shame can be dealt with. Can we be praying for them as we worship God now? Because I want to come back and I want to talk to you and I want to talk to them. But let's worship, please. We're nearly there. You make me lie in fields of green You lead me by still waters You restore righteousness to me
Psalm of David. David, in Psalm 23, wrote these words. And now, this is a story that I've told you about, so let me just introduce you to the author. He's here. He's right here in this room. He's right where you are. No matter where you are right now, the author of this story can become your redeemer. He can become the one who gets you out of the situation you're in and takes you and turns your life around. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your son as our redeemer. We thank you, Jesus, that you came. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that the reality of you as a forgiving God would become real to everyone who's watching right now. No matter what you've done, no matter who knows what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, or how far away you think you are from God, I can absolutely guarantee you that according to God's word, which is true, if you come to God and ask him for forgiveness, you will be forgiven. And you can not only be forgiven, you can come and have him transform your heart and adopt you as his son or daughter, and you can live forever in perfect bliss with him in eternity. It just begins with a simple prayer. Father, forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for you. And I pray, Lord, for each of us that we would be ready and equipped ambassadors, always ready to give an answer. May we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. As we've heard tonight, David was almost one of those rags-to-riches story. Humble beginnings, but appointed by God to leadership and a key figure in the lineage of Christ. He made some terrible mistakes and yet was redeemed. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.